Hello, welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have John Wu, president of Ava Labs. Ava Labs is a blockchain company specifically focusing on empowering financial institutions to modernize their infrastructure and help create the next generation of back office protocols. And with that, here's my interview with John. Hello, John. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for taking the time today. So John Wu, president of Ava Labs. Tell us about Ava Labs. Sure. So Ava Labs is a company that was formed to create the next generation blockchain. And we built it with an explicit purpose in mind, making it easy to digitize assets and trade and transact assets. We call it the internet of finance because we want enterprises as well as DeFi participants to launch their own financial applications on our protocol. Excellent. That was a very succinct elevator pitch. I like it. So John, tell me about your, uh, your history. You've got quite the uh, journey one, despite your young, fresh face. Thank you for that. Um, So first half of my career, I was on Wall Street. I was a technology investor at various hedge funds that are quite well known, Tiger, Kingdon. I ran my own fund that Blackstone was the lead investor. So Mm -hmm. I've always been looking at emerging technologies. And when I decided to start invest for myself and looking at the crypto space, I realized two things. One, you can't invest back in 13, 14, 15. You cannot do it for the fund because there was no mm. infrastructure and it was impossible to perform your fiduciary responsibilities. So I started investing for myself. And once you start investing for yourself, you realize something that hits you like a, like a stiff board. When you work with the firms that I work with, you take completely for granted all the people on a different floor in the back office, the accountants, the administrators, and all the Excel spreadsheets and manual flow to allow things to happen in order for me to find an investment. And to me, seemingly, it is just a smooth transaction. But in reality, when you start investing for yourself, you realize, whoa, this stuff is really hard for individuals or, frankly, small family offices to get involved. So that was lesson yeah. one. That there's a lot of hamsters running around on wheels in the background. Oh, Yeah. And the second thing I I saw, and this is like 2017, and no doubt I benefited from it, but I think there was like seven to 10 billion in 2017 of money raised in these ICOs, they called it back Mm -hmm. then. And I realized right away, having been an alternative asset manager, that all of these things that were raised, these tokens, they in the US were basically illegal raises or transactions. They basically end around the Securities Acts of 1933 and 34, did not rely on any exemptions for fundraising or transacting like Reg D, Reg S, or 144A. So I was also investing personally in private shares, and I knew people at a place called Shares Post. And I had this view that these ICOs are really STOs, and they need to transact using the ATS and other things that you normally have in traditional finance. I'm sure so, that made you very popular in the crypto sphere. Well, uh, it made you popular <laughs> in other places where people realized yes. what was happening. And I think, we'll be a little side tangent here, but I think when you look at the banking fees that could have been raised by a Goldman Sachs or something on seven to eight to nine. 10, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> that's why regulation came in. I mean, I am convinced because people realized how much money was not being attributed to Wall Street mm-hmm. and the banks. And whoever else, the regulators, I mean, regulators genuinely care that people were not getting scammed, for sure. But the attention really comes when people think about it as the value that's being transferred away from traditional finance to somewhere in the ether, if you will. 
anyway, so I went on this journey basically, and ultimately SharesPost had the similar vision. And uh, I, I became the CEO of the digital assets group at SharesPost. And we had a team of 12 people. I worked tirelessly with the SEC and FINRA and did a change of membership agreement. And basically we were successful, at least from a mechanical perspective in transacting security tokens, as well as uh, making funds trade in a tokenized, digitized manner. So I frankly think though, commercially, the world wasn't ready for it. It's that simple. Well, I mean, it was, you know, I've said this before on the podcast uh, and before I go any further, for those of you who are starting to get lost in some of the crypto terminology, there are, there are definitely some earlier episodes of my podcast specifically that dealt with uh, introduction to what blockchain was. So I highly recommend those, but it's the adoption cycle of any technology, right? Like that was the very early, we were out of the frontier adoptees into the early adopters of a blockchain, right? And now we're getting to, I'm, with the great thing about what I'm seeing now in the interviews I'm giving, it's I'm starting to see the promise of blockchain start to come to fruition as opposed to mm -hmm. just the hype cycle that existed before. So it's very, to me, it's more exciting than the hype cycle and certain claims about people made about uh, Bitcoin hitting a million dollars. Otherwise they would do something in about 90 days. Worst bet ever. Uh, <laughs> anyway, you'll see, I'll tweet that out one day. Anyway, so point is, is that it's not surprising they weren't ready, right? Like it's just user adoption. People just weren't ready to wrap their heads around it. Number of times I had to kind of use 12 different analogies to get people to understand how blockchain worked was nuts. So that was the early days. It wasn't ready. What, what did you do from there? Yeah. So actually I want to go solve the greater problem. It's not just making it easy for individuals and accredited investors and small family offices to trade crypto, but the entire mm -hmm. world of private assets is very clunky and hard for individuals or small family offices to transact in. You can't research mm -hmm. them, you can't access them, and then the workflow is very cumbersome. You know, you're filling out KYC AMLs like 10 times for each time oh. to do something. So yeah. I took part of my team from the Digital Assets Group at SharesPost, and we went out and I started a software company, a SaaS company, to basically enable individuals, frankly accredited and above, and small family offices to give them some of that support that I used to see as an institutional investor at a Tiger or a Kingdom or a Blackstone. So automating a lot of the backend stuff and then getting access into not just crypto, but also private shares. There's plenty of secondary markets now for private shares, mm -hmm. helping people not do their KYC ML 18,000 times over. Things like, you know, you when you're invested in funds, you know, you're constantly asked to wire money when they are calling capital. I mean, if you invest in like 10 funds, you get three or four from each one of these funds. That's 30 or 40 times you're now copying and pasting your wire information and sending it to somebody. For capital call. To, yeah, and, and that's just a lot of time out of your life that I never saw until I started investing on my own for this stuff. So with that said, my mission basically became to make this world more efficient, remove the inefficiencies for transacting and private securities for individuals and small family offices. Gun, the founder and CEO of Ava Labs, has known me for some time. And he came to me various uh, times in my career. It never was perfect to join up. But basically, he's like, listen, your mission and ours is not that different. Ava Labs' mission is very simply to allow people to easily create assets and then to move those assets as frictionlessly as possible via the protocol of Avalanche and the blockchain Ava Labs has created. So he acquired Investry. Our business development team moved over, and now Ava Labs is I'm not going to be shy. It's a thriving company, and we are doing great things. So talk to me about how Avalanche solves for some of the problems out there that other blockchains do not. Like, What, what makes you special? 
in okay, this so, crowded sphere. Okay, so there's many ways to answer that, but I'm gonna answer it from a vision perspective first. Gun and his team, earlier you talked about how blockchains have 1.0 versions and 2.0. We think of ourselves as 3.0. You know, 1.0, we saw Bitcoin and people learn how to transfer value around. Yep. Ethereum is kind of like a world's computer. They realize you can program stuff on top and they made it so dApps can be done and smart contracts can be done. But yeah, transaction processing speed was still relatively slow. There's a whole new wave of, I would call it blockchain 3.0. I think Avalanche leads that blockchain 3.0 cohort where it's not just about making it faster, more scalable, less latency, like a lot of people are trying to solve in ETH 2.0 world, but it's mm -hmm. also goes back to what you said also, in order to increase adoption, you need to make this usable. So we've designed our blockchain with a flexible architecture so that developers, both on the enterprise world and as well as the permissionless side D5 guys can easily build things on top of Avalanche. And ultimately, like you said earlier, to get increased adoption, we're going to have to make things as simple for the incremental, call it crypto user, as if they were on Schwab and not key generation and, and go to MetaMask and figure out how to do wallets or, mm -hmm. or storing things in cold storage, et cetera. Yeah, agreed. I mean, the, the cognitive burden imposed upon people in order to just figure out, like, I want to buy this token. Okay. If you're not one of the big two, then automatically exponentially greater, right? And if you're just someone starting from scratch, it definitely isn't the Robin Hood experience of the world where it's like, oh, great, I can not only do this, I can do this free and I can do this on my phone and everything else. The wheels aren't greased enough for, for that sort of experience to exist thus far. A lot yeah, of the things it, that are made right now are basically made by crypto people for crypto people. That's great. But if you want to increase, <laughs> yes, increase usage, if that's the goal for adoption, that's not going to be satisfactory. Yeah, agreed. And I think with the adoption rate stuff too, I mean, the, the reality is, is that the crypto exchanges that exist to date are, again, let's call them the Gen 1, right? Like Gen 1 of mass market, because Gen 1 of adoption was people getting their own servers, harvesting their own, you know, basically mining their own coins. But for the for the general public, it's, hey, I can get into Coinbase, I can get into whatever else, and I can, I can transfer money here and they're going to hold it. And I trust them to hold it, whether you want to trust them or not, whatever. But the point is, is that's, that's the level. I think the analogy you made about just as easy as Schwab, you, you got that right. Like it's got to get to the point at some point, whether that be generation two, three or whatever it is, we get to the point where it's just another asset that they transact on online and we're not there yet. And I think that your point about a lot of these decisions are, are things are being made for other people in crypto and everybody's just kind of in this echo chamber of, of, of geekdom uh, enjoying this. You're absolutely right. We have to cross these thresholds into the general public, especially given the promise of blockchain being something is so, so valuable as replacing the underlying infrastructure for every securities transaction. Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's what we hope to do. We want to create what we call the internet of finance. And part of, and you mentioned Robin in the traditional finance world where they've made it so easy, completely frictionless, and young people who are playing around with Robin, they absolutely love it. But a lot of that changed- A little too much. Let's just be honest. A little too okay, much. Okay, okay. <laughs> put, that, put that aside. Put that aside. But a lot of that, call it fintech in the traditional world, has happened at the user level, and it's not on the infrastructure level. And, th and there's mm -hmm. a reason for that. On the yeah. infrastructure level, traditional financial institutions, whether it's banks or asset managers, whatever, they have legacy systems that cost a lot of money. And oh, yeah. it's, very, it's all siloed. It is archaic in some senses. And then well, you can't a program a blockchain in COBOL. You're kidding me? Anyway, well, I mean, I mean, it is just inoperable 
in a, uh, I would say, a young techie's mind. So until that infrastructure is actually either replaced incrementally or completely overhauled, we're not going to get to the simple Robinhood example yet. And that's why Alva Labs, I think it's so exciting because what we're building, hopefully, will make us and the world closer to a paradigm where things are easily created and transacted in terms of assets. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I'm glad you said the entire transaction, like the incremental thing, because it's, it's so true. A lot of times technologists come in and say, look at this thing. It is so much better than what you're using now. And they look at you and say, okay, but we have this thing that even though it's clunky, it works, it works really well. Like we've got this down to a science and we do plan on replacing it, but we're not going to replace it for something that you just saw, you just created today and hasn't gone through the kind of robust testing that our current structures have. Right. And, you know, we're just trying to get the data off of COBOL, which is like a running joke in my podcast, onto at least some sort of more modern server so that we can actually potentially one day open up an API. And you're telling us you want to skip all that and go straight into blockchain, right? Like when, when this yeah. hasn't been fully proven, right? So, you know, you even if you understand the technology, once you understand like the motivations or the positioning of the financial institutions who are saying no to these things right now, you get why, right? It's not like they, I think if I, if you pulled aside any major financial institutions like CEO and you got them to understand blockchain at the highest level, they would be like, I would love to implement this tomorrow, but there's no way it's going to happen under my tenure. <laughs> like it's just, that's going to be the reaction. Yeah. And that's absolutely right. I mean, the theme of your podcast is fintech. Obviously mm -hmm. this one is more blockchain oriented because of Ava Labs, but I would add one more thing to why it's not going to happen overnight. And a lot of crypto and, and blockchain native people have not figured out that actually in fintech regulation mm -hmm. means a lot. And there are real costs to that. There's a simple reason why Silicon Valley's disintermediated retail and other industries way before they started attacking fintech and healthcare, because those are two very, very regulated verticals and for good reason. So I think this next generation of blockchain developers, business people, and entrepreneurs are understanding that. And you have a lot of people now, like myself, who've come from one world and want to make change in this world, and they can bridge that gap that perhaps the one from five years ago wouldn't think about or wasn't able to think about. Yeah. And it's 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 not surprising. I mean, it's um, I'll liken it to a friend of mine from high school who very much to high school became an activist. Uh, and then at, over time matured a little bit and realized, yeah, you know what? Maybe it's not the best message to burn everything down and start over again. Maybe we need to figure out how to evolve structures to basically to succeed the ways we, you know, to achieve those goals over time, right? It's, you know, you see something bright and shiny, you're young, you're, you're you basically see how this solves so many of the world's problems and you want it to happen tomorrow. But you said it like regulation. Regulation is a massive obstacle and often not times because not not because of the regulators specifically, it's because regulators lack of willingness to change it's the regulators learning curve and we've solved for all these problems there's still problems exist we solve for all these problems and now you want us to introduce a new infrastructure that has a new set of problems we haven't even begun to dream of right like you haven't even told us that you can address all the problems we have before right so it's not surprising that that's the case but again at least to my conversations with regulators and other people who had the same experience most of them tend to be relatively open if you can show them the way that is all true and the other thing here in this vertical finance financial services is that it has to be done on scale it can't be just done in a small manner i mean we're talking about major banks who control so much of the the world's cash flow you cannot yeah. have a system that works 
in a, a niche and not for everything. Yeah, but I mean, like, I picture you know a simple example. Like, one custodian comes out and says, "Oh, great, we're gonna we're, we're gonna basically now transact all our securities on on a blockchain." And they're just like every other custodian is like, "But you trade with us. Like, how are we gonna sell this? Like, that's you know, it's just not gonna." Well, work. You just said it. Financial services is an embedded network of participants, and everyone needs to work with everyone else. So you think about financial services and look at things that we are we take for granted today, like Visa or you know Mastercard, the rails for basically transacting in plastic. I mean, yep. that originally was built through a consortium. I think it was mm -hmm. a Bank of America card back in the '60s or '70s, and that Bank you of America are correct with V. Was it Visa? One of those two. Yeah, it was. It was Visa. Diners. And for, yeah, it was to compete with yes. Diners Club of all things. But come on. yes, yeah. So I, it was. It was sponsored by one bank. Everyone had ownership in it. It was actually very similar to a crypto model, interestingly enough. Because, it's actually a brilliant. You know, it's actually a brilliant story about how they kind of guerrilla tactic marketed that thing by just sending people cards without asking and saying, yeah. like, "Here, you're approved for five thousand dollars or something like that." And it's just like, okay, yeah, to college students, nonetheless. But that—that's a later part. I mean, the very beginning, it was all part of Bank of America with a few other banks participating, and. It was hard to sign up the so the people in the network. You got the merchants, and you got to get users, and you got all the other banks. So you've seen in financial services these consortium be created, and that's how Visa first started out. Ultimately, it became successful after a long period of time, like 10, 20 years before it became had mass adoption, because Bank of America realized that in order for this Visa thing to be successful, they had to basically take their brand off of it. Why would JP Morgan want to? promote the Bank of America card. So 100%, I mean, problem. any kind of, sorry, any kind of network technology faces that same kind of crucial, crucial decision. I mean, even in, in financial planning, the same decision to be made by the American College to spin off the CFP designation, but like, oh, you know, yeah. ARM, for instance, right? Like, would everybody want to be paying royalties to Apple right now for the use of ARM technology? No, they, and Apple realized that early on and spun it off as a separate thing. If you want to make it, if you want to make everybody adopt it, no one wants to pay their competitor, right? Like, so you're, we're better off by through pooled networking solutions, basically gaining mass adoption than we are than from one person trying to, one company trying to own the entire sphere. That's right. And hence blockchain, hopefully. I mean, hopefully blockchain, which is, you know, network by nature and what Ava Labs is creating, allowing people to create financial institutions, create their own subnet, basically subnetwork and letting them mm -hmm. have control of their own sub-network. They can even create more than one sub-network in their own institution. And then we allow those sub-networks to connect easily. So again, instead of like starting from one institution saying, trust me, all of a sudden everyone can start with their own sub-network and let them connect in voluntarily over time. It's kind of like how the internet started. I mean, the internet didn't just start because you and I decided to connect together. It started because each university had their own little internet cohort, call it. And then over yep. time, these different networks started connecting. You know, I would liken Ava Labs and Avalanche to being like TCP IP. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's a that's an apt analogy given that, I mean, to me, this is I, I use that analogy all the time. This is a fundamental when people say, like, oh, well, you know, is blockchain gonna survive? I'm like, did, like what? Like, you know, people too often get the hype cycle of Bitcoin just confused with the underlying technology. And I always use the analogy of like, well, the hype cycle of dot com bubble when that blew up didn't invalidate the internet, right? Like the crypto That's chasing right. chasing like fast bucks 
doesn't invalidate the fact that that we have a, a new protocol that solves for so many problems that basically changes the way everything works. And it's interesting. You're, you're, I have to say, you kind of have a bit of a, what's known as a termite analogy. You're basically going to erode. You get a win. You're trying to win by by slowly chipping away at, at the thing from from different angle from different players. And yeah, if it gets to the point where everybody's got solved their own problems internally. And then can turn outward, then they can basically say, okay, well, if uh, if Ava Labs has got enough of those major players in there, you guys become the protocol for the exchange as well. Yeah, that's a great point. I love how you put that together. I think also a lot of blockchain people don't realize that, you know, ultimately you're relying on this protocol, this consensus protocol. And there's a field of distributed systems and and classical protocol has existed for like 45 years. Mm -hmm. Satoshi Nakamoto came about 12 years ago. That's the second paradigm in in protocols. But um, the concept of a consensus protocol has been around for a long time. Yep. Yep. It has. And I mean, I think in fairness, I think a lot of the the pushback from a lot of the people in the crypto spheres, let's face it, a lot of these people tend to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Anarchists uh, or at least libertarian. Let's just say libertarian. And, you know, a lot of it is seen as, as a way to get away from the control of governments, right? Well, not, well, that's of, of value to you and you think that's fine, the majority of population of the population, whether you want to accept it or not, likes comfort and security. And governments, large financial institutions, much to my chagrin in many cases, many ways, create are, are like that. They're going to basically give people that level of reassurance that it's okay to use something like this. Yeah. I mean, it'll take time, but I liken it to those grunge bands back in the 90s, like, you know, Pearl Jam. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the trick to this whole thing is that first Pearl Jam had this like Seattle grunge following, but somehow mm-hmm. they morphed into a commercial band and got really big and blew up without completely disenfranchising their original audience. Yeah. How does blockchain and crypto on the permissionless side, at least, do that without completely disenfranchising the libertarians that were so powerful and creating this movement. It's a challenge because, right? I mean, you know, we fast forward this conversation 10 years and we don't even talk about adoption curves of, of, of blockchain. Like it's all happening. Right. And at least that's my belief. And we no longer talk about this abstract thing or this like only the cool kids are listening to this music stuff. It's like it's just accepted. And you know what? It's not to say that, again, there's, there's multiple blockchains, there's multiple protocols, there's multiple coins. Right. And it could be that a lot of what they hope to accomplish gets established. I mean, if Bitcoin does not go away, which I do not think it will, it still accomplishes a lot of what they want, right? So doesn't it's not it's not a mutually exclusive success, right? For them to get what they want, it's not doesn't mean that the rest of the world has to not adopt it or lose. Right. I mean, there's two things you just said in there. One is 10 years from now, I'm hoping that having a blockchain solution is similar to saying I use AWS. It's just there. Yep. Or like I drive a car. I have no idea how that engine works. Today it's, you know, gas uh, fuel injection, but tomorrow it's going to be electric, but it's just there yep. and I, I know how to drive a car. The second thing is that I don't think there is going to be just one winner. I think you alluded to that just now. I think just like with any other industry, I mean, there's there's iOS for your mobile phone. There's also Android. I mean, in that world, there used to be more. Now it's down to kind of two. But there are so many applications for blockchain and so many niche spaces that you can have many different companies and protocols winning. It's not like Facebook and social, Google and search, Amazon and e-commerce. Yeah, I mean, I think I argue that maybe there are industry standard protocols, right? Like you're, you'll have one for finance, you'll have one for for health. Maybe that's the case, specifically uniquely designed around the challenges of that particular 
vertical altogether. But in terms of the, yeah, winner take all, one chain to rule them all. Yeah, I, I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon at all. Because it's just, that would presume that all the major players adopt the same major protocols all at the same time to get there. And I just don't see that happening. Right. That's not going to happen. I agree with you no. 100% there. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a promising time. And, and I think one of the, I'm going to come back to your comment about Schwab and making it easy like that. I mean, to me, we're still talking about this as a novel thing, right? I mean, like I am not holding po- podcasts on the discussion of TCP IP, right? Like it's just like, it's done. It's that it's, it's not, it's not novel. It's not new. It's not worth talking about. It's just accepted. And let's face it, the average person is not going to want to understand or give a damn that blockchain is what cleared their transaction or what tokenizes their security, right? We already have fractional share trading at various custodians in the US and and one in Canada. And this is just a mechanism for further facilitating that. So, I mean, like the reality is, is that like one of the use cases for it's already there. We'll just change the back end at some point. It'll make it easier and better and faster and, and even fractionalize even further. But the end user doesn't care. The end user just wants the job to be done to be done. That's right. And in 10 years, I hope in the financial services world, the end user sees that if you're like a bank and you're syndicating a loan, that loan kind of takes 16 to 25 days to settle and clear. A public equity takes like two days. You know, private equity takes 30 to 90 days when it's like Airbnb. In the end, that user, we're going to notice that it's almost instantaneous for that loan or instantaneous for that equity. And they're, what they're going to feel is that their capital, trillions of dollars out there trapped that normally mm-hmm. in settlement, settlement bottlenecks, suddenly is available to them and they can use that right away in some other capacity and increase their IRR on their investments. 100%. When you think about the number of, you know, I'll go back to the old uh, hamster wheels behind the thing. We think about the entire I- ecosystem that you talked about in terms of like people clearing stuff and all the different aspects of uh, AML and everything else. And just how much paper still moves between desks in this world. I said it before, the um, man, I if you're working in the back office somewhere, you might want to start getting retrained for something else in the future. Because you don't, you know, if you're young, you ain't going to retire in that industry. But you think about the, the massive amounts of efficiency. And I'll just, you know, should go back one step. When I look at the big bank towers that exist in downtown in my city, and most people think it's just people doing bank stuff and, and high-level finance stuff. No, the majority of those floors are taken up by back office people, right? And, you, and when you think about the amount of overhead that that creates that can be digitized away now, wow, are we talking about like inc- massive increases to profits in long-term and potentially massive price competition that benefits the consumer through the implementation of this? That's absolutely correct. And over time, this is why every one of those banks in those bank towers have some sort of incubation lab somewhere where they're experimenting with blockchain. Mm-hmm. In fact, we get calls from all of these places asking us to go and talk to them. It's tough for us to do it with everyone because a lot of these literally are incubation labs for future-proofing their company and have has no direct translation in terms of implementation right now. So we can't mm-hmm. choose every single person. But that's exactly what they're thinking. They're thinking, how do we increase our margins? And when do we hit that tipping point where this technology is able to replace these 10 people and make it worthy to do it? Excellent. So before we wrap up, there's three questions I'd like to ask everybody. And I'm going to ask you just the same. So first question, if you had one wish for something to change in your company or in the industry as a whole, what would it be? The industry as a whole. So do you mean the permissionless side or the enterprise side? I define tell you it about, however you want to define it. Okay, so on the enterprise side, I would love to be able to basically somehow find the five enterprises 
that are closer to the end of that future-proof incubation lab and work with those only. On the permissionless side, the DeFi side, we've seen it go from literally 1 billion to about close to 9 or 10 billion right now. I really want to make sure that there's responsible quality players out there as opposed to what we saw in the 2000 ICO world that we saw just three years ago. You can't have a flood or a um, gold rush into an industry without a bunch of felons coming along for the ride. That's for sure. Somehow we've got to self-regulate and minimize that because we do not want this fantastic trend in this use case to completely be cut off at its knees because of bad actors. And interesting, one, one important lesson to add there when it comes to regulation, you hit the right word, self-regulation. And this is, you know, having lobbied on behalf of various various changes within my own country. The reality is when it comes to the question, not a lot of people like the concept of regulation because people just inherently don't like to be told what to do. But as a pragmatist, I say you have two choices. You either self-figure it, get your stuff, get your crap together and self-regulate, or it's going to be imposed upon you statutorily. And those decisions are not made by people in a know. They're made by people who have been assigned to clean up a problem. That is the worst outcome, right? When when you have when you self-regulate, you can get the right people who have the vested interest in who have the right knowledge around the table and have a definitive role in that, in that regulation. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. That's right. Second question for you. What's been the biggest challenge again the company where it is today? Well, just to be clear, the company was started about a year and a half ago, Andreessen Horowitz mm-hmm. Paul. Polychain Metasero and Initialized Capital funded it. So it's only been a, a year and a half. The biggest problem we have right now is finding, we're growing very quickly and we need mm-hmm. to hire people. So I think the biggest bottleneck is finding similar type quality people in a very efficient manner. Yeah, um, there's definitely not, there's not exactly a plethora of, of excess surplus in in number of people who can actually code in blockchain. So uh, good luck to you on that. Uh, it's, it's a universal problem. Not just coding, so, it's also the business development aspect, the yeah. marketing aspect, all of it. I mean, we've get, I guess I'll give you two for one. How about this? A second yeah, problem we, we have, and I can I wish I can wish away, is we have more than our share of inbound calls, whether it's from enterprises mm. who want us to work with them to potential people who want to work for oh, us. Oh, what a terrible to, existence you have. The business <laughs> partnerships, but we have to filter all of those out because once you just do it, once you're known, everyone's like glomming onto you and not necessarily in the right way. I did love how you dropped uh, name dropped Andreessen Horowitz. Like it was nothing. That was amusing. <laughs> but that said, no, it's, it's right. I mean, I wouldn't think like, you know, in terms of the business development, I hadn't even thought about that. There is a challenge with those people just in getting their knowledge of what you're doing to a level great enough that they can speak to with expertise, right? With, with a level of confidence. Yep. You know, I have to think you're you're literally hiring engineers for sales salespeople because the average person who most companies will give anyone anyone with any kind of background a sales opportunity as long as they can try to sell. You can't fake it through this one, man. You can't fake it till you make it in, in, in blockchain. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. So the last question I have for you is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and, and keeps you getting up in the morning to fight the good fight? Yeah. So the first half of my career, as you know, I was in financial services where basically I used the existing rails, so to speak, figuratively, and I rode on those rails. And throughout my career, I always noticed things that I thought were inefficient or should be changed or just not good enough. Finally, I'm at a place where we are trying to create the internet of finance with our blockchain, and I get a chance to basically recreate that infrastructure. And be able to make that change is what gets me jazzed up every day. Yeah, the, uh, the finally get the opportunity to solve the problems that you hated before. Fantastic. Yeah. Excellent. John, 
Thank you so much for your time. Very much appreciate it. Hope everybody finds this informative and uh, good luck. Jason, thank you. So that was my interview with John Wu of Labs. I hope you enjoyed that. And I've said it before many times on this podcast, but it's really hard to underestimate just how much blockchain is going to revolutionize the way things are done. However, if done right, you're not going to notice it. So as always, this has been FinTech Impact, and I'm your host, Jason Pereira. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.